Welcome to this week's episode of the Help on the Way podcast. We are featuring March 3rd, 1987, from the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center in beautiful and lovely Oakland, California. I am your co-host, The Game, here with my fellow co-hosts, Snob and Fig, and our special guest, world-renowned Charlie Miller. Nob and Fig, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest to the show. Oh, hey, how you doing, Charlie? We're very glad to have you here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. The man, the myth, the legend, Charlie Miller on our podcast. I am super thrilled to have you. Thank you so much. Right on. Yeah. We've been doing this podcast for about two years now, over two years. And it was very early on that we realized that we need Charlie Miller on the podcast. So we are super thrilled to have you here today. And, and we have That's some questions awesome. for you. Let's do it. All right. I will. Uh, so. I'll, Go ahead. I'll kick off the, the interview portion just because it's probably Please the do. easiest question of, of the, of the, the bunch. Um, and Charlie, you probably have gotten this question from literally every single Grateful Dead related interview you've done, <laughs> but we might as well ask it ourselves. How did you find yourself on this crazy Grateful Dead bus? Um, in like 1977, um, I guess we all know who Rob Liedstein is from Sirius Radio, Grateful Dead Channel. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he went to school with my sister and me. He was, but he was in her grade, and he was at my house one day, and he was um, visiting, hanging out with a bunch of friends. And when he left, he left a tape there. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was, uh, you know what? It was um, the King Biscuit Flower Hour from October 6, nineteen seventy-seven. Wow, and okay. it had the. It had uh, the Terrapin from 32077, and uh, it had just been aired, and he was telling my sister about it. They, he left, and he left it there, so I grabbed it, and I listened to it, and that was my first time really, you know, really, really listening to it. And um, I remember hearing Eyes of the World on the radio and Help Slip Franklin's. Now, you heard it on the radio as a single, or was it like a live? Yeah, it was, yeah oh. no, like it was WLIR back in seventy. Six, I think they were playing. I remember hearing this on the on the car stereo driving around one day. My dad, he had a plane. Very interesting. And the other thing that really got me going is my friend forced me, literally forced me to listen to St. Stephen and the Eleven from Live Dead. He would not drive me back home until he I, he played this for me. He's like, you can walk if you want, but it was too far. So <laughs> I was like, man, really? And it was like five minutes into it. I really didn't get it at the time, but looking back at that, I'm kind of. Embarrassed to say that, you know, but that was kind of it. Just the combination of those things, you know, Rob Blinstein just happened to leave that tape at my house. Right. Now, do you have like a musical background? Like, like, what is your, like, how did you get into the more audio technical side of things? Um, You know, just from your basic fandom. I took some guitar lessons and did a little drum stuff, but I, I can't really play along with anybody. And I really like, you know, I had this, I'm just drawn to music. I just yeah. grew up on it. Um, my mom told me that when I was like six or seven, if I was at somebody's birthday party, everyone would be playing and I'd be sitting by myself listening to records, you know? And uh, I just always, always like collecting live tapes. And, you know, I started collecting Grateful Dead tapes in 1978 and, um, you know, on a big scale. 
and I just thought I'd try recording. And the circumstances just worked out on spring tour in 1983 that uh, I happened to be sitting in tapers. And, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up, you know, just after recording a bunch of shows, you end up meeting the band's crew and just things progress. And next thing you know, you're touring with them. Um, so what, what was the culture like around the tapers at the time? Like, what was the vibe like? It was pretty cool because, you know, not too long before I showed up, um, they were, they were really coming down hard on tapers. Dan Healy told this story in an interview once that I was listening to, um, with David Gans. And he said that one of the band's guests were at, it was at a show and, um, one of the tapers was giving the guest a really hard time over their seat because he wanted, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm taping. Screw you. Go sit somewhere else. And he didn't realize that the person was an actual guest of the band, you know, a friend of the band that was trying to see the show. So when the band had heard about it, um, you know, Dan Healy got upset and started telling security, don't let tapers in with their gear anymore. Just, you know, I think this was, mid-1981, and this went on for about a, oh, most of the year, apparently. You know, and when I showed up in 83, it was pretty easy. You just walk in with it, and you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was absolutely open, so it was kind of a... Everybody was really happy and really chill because they didn't have to deal with the whole hassle of the security. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I showed up with a D6, and everybody was always willing to teach me whatever I needed to know or give me a patch, and I just asked a lot of questions. And so how, I, how long did it take before you became proficient in taping, you know, from your first, you know, few shows to when you really started liking the product? I honestly think the second recording I ever made is one of the best tapes I ever made in my life. Wow. It was uh, it was the the first night when Steven still showed up at the Brendan Byrne. Sure. And okay. um, yeah, we had the microphones. We were like right by the board. We we're actually in front of the board because you can do that back then. Okay. And it was uh, it, it just sounds it just sounds amazing, you know. It's just amazing recording it. It's it, there's more. There's more PA and music and full sound than there is ambient room. It's 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 hard to believe, you know, that it's just mics back by the board. It's a really good recording. And there after that I just was really shocked, you know, at how good they can be. And that was a real changing point. Nice. And what so then you would have been there as they introduced the the taper section. That was eighty four? I was 84. Yeah, I wasn't at the show. That was October 27th, 1984 in Berkeley. Um, I was I was still taping sporadically, but not as much. I took a I would show up um, more often without a deck. And, you know, at that point, I was taping a lot in 83. And I stopped a little bit and I came back a few years later. And when I came back a few years later, I got my own microphones. I got a mixer you know, four microphones and a mixer and and a really nice stand. And uh, it was a lot of fun then because that was just, that was next level, you know. That's awesome. Um, I had a question. So you, you tape for bands besides The Dead. You were just at, at some of the Fish shows at, at Dick's as well as 
the yep. Madison Square Garden run. I was there yep. for a, a, the first two nights of the MSG shows. Um, that was good. Yeah, very cool wave of hope. But I, I've promised my co-host that I'm not geeking out about fish with you. Move along. I was, I was, <laughs> it's in writing that I'm not allowed to geek out get, about fish right now. You get one. Um, part of your contract. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you too, Charlie. You get actually you get two. You're you're the guest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't say the song title anymore, but you can say <laughs> a second fish song, and we're good. Um, yeah, <laughs> but like, is would you find that there is a a difference in the taper culture between say the dead in the '80s or '90s compared to say fish now? Absolutely, because with the Grateful Dead, everybody had their own microphone stand. And now with fish, you got one microphone stand and there's literally, you know, six or seven people with multiple mics clamped onto it. You know, you got like two dozen microphones on a stand. And back with the Grateful Dead, as an example, at the Compton Terror shows in 1990, I gave out of my patch bay, I gave 35 patches. I followed the chain of cassette decks patched off my microphones and it was 35 decks after my deck. Wow. And you go to a wow. fish show and that doesn't happen due to di- digital technology. Everybody just comes and does their own thing. You don't really need to patch anymore. Everybody's coming with like six or whatever microphones and with, with their sound devices recorder. And I'm like one of the only people showing up to fish with just two microphones right now. You know? That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So it's, on- it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and you've definitely left your mark. Um, I'm going to shuffle things back to the Grateful Dead. Um, yes. <laughs> since this is our Grateful Dead podcast. Um, so the question I have is, you know, on top of taping, you know, you're, you're famous as well for uh, doing a lot of mixing and the work that you've done, um, placing a, a lot of these sources on the archive, which is where, you know, we first kind of, um, you know, got in touch with you. So I just have some questions about what are the kind of things that you look out for when you're mixing the various band members? Um, you know, just Jerry or Bobby, like Rhythm Devils, Phil, like different, different, different things, different, like, uh, I don't know, EQs that, that, that you'll uh, put in place or, you know, what is the process there? Does it change my band members or am I kind of off uh, base? Well, it's with, with the Grateful Dead stuff, I'm not so much mixing it as I am mastering it. Okay. And, yeah. you know, Dan Healy, as we all know, is an absolute genius. And I don't want to try to mess with his his amazing work. But sometimes if there's like no low end on a tape for whatever reason, you know, I might give it a couple of decibels of sub bass so your subwoofer actually moves a little bit, you know. But I don't want to make it all bumpy and boomy, nor do I want to EQ it for my room because it sounds great in my room, but it may not sound, sound great in your room. So I generally don't do too much with that. But if I was, if it's something with multi-tracks that I was actually mixing down or, you know, just try to get a nice, even balance. When I do my mixes, like with Kimok, I, I do, you know, when I'm doing sound or doing recording, the, the recordings with him, basically, I just try to make it that kind of like with what the Ultimatrix recordings did with Dan Healy and Don Pearson, how, it's a board, but it's kind of the way it sounded at the soundboard, the way Dan Healy heard it, Good. you know? So it's kind of, with Kimok, I try to make it where the listener is front row, like leaning on the stage, where you, you can hear it, and it's kind of, the this, the stereo imaging and the balance is kind of like as if you were there. And that's my whole thing is with the balance, just try to make it sound the way it did there. Sure. 
Awesome. Um, now, I was reading uh, uh, an AMA that you did on the Grateful Dead subreddit uh, a couple years back, and you said that yes. uh, that the March 26, 1972 show was a, a particularly difficult master. Uh, can you speak as to what made that tape so uniquely difficult to deal with? Yeah. Um, Rob Eaton re restored those reels, the Betty reels that were damaged in the flood of the storage locker. Oh, yeah. Okay. And um, he had sent me pictures, and he has since posted them online. It looks like somebody had left the reels out in the street in like a puddle next to a sewer or something, oh. you know, to a grade. They looked horrible. And he would spend all day with some cleaning solution and a Q-tip. And inch by inch, he was, clean, he was making these reels playable. Hmm. But there was like this thud thing. <laughs> this like little thud sound that kept popping up constantly and constantly. Yeah. And it was, it was getting worse as the as the the run went on from the first night towards the end it kind of started getting worse so and this happened to be the longest night of all the of all the shows there so um like in, an example the, i don't remember which night one night opens up a greatest story ever told and it i had a hundred edits in that four minute song just, oh. just cleaning just cleaning the thud up because you can't do an automated thing where you tell something to go through and clean them all up. You got to go through one at a time. Otherwise, it doesn't sound good. And that's just not, you know, yeah. So you, you were ac actively taking the thuds off of the Actively sound. taking the thuds yeah. off. And oh. I spent, um, keeping in mind, I had done all the shows leading up to it at that point. I was completely frazzled. And I worked on the show and I went through it. And I went through it, and and I said I'm, I I need a break, so I sent it to David Gans, and he was taking a flight somewhere, so he sat on the plane with headphones, and he worked on a whole bunch of it, and then he sent it back to me, and I did a whole bunch more, sent it back, we just sent it back and forth, and eventually we got to the point where it's just like okay, this is this is good enough, and keeping in mind at the time I wasn't allowed to share any of it, so we were just doing it because of what it was, mm -hmm. and um. As as you notice the uh, the I think they put it out on a Dave's picks, is it? They released it on something, but when they released it, I think they had the reels or something. I think Rob told me that when he recently or in 2015 when he got all the Betty reels back, and there was a whole bunch of batches we didn't know about that he had gotten back. He said the new transfers he had done on the reels didn't have that thud problem as severe as the original transfers huh. just to do do the restoration he had originally done on the tapes and over time and plus he used betty's uh nagra to transfer them the second time so he said it wasn't as bad and and if okay. you notice when they released a dick's picks i think of what was it the 28th they released the on the dick's i think is a dick's picks. Oh, the 25th. Yeah. The, the reason they chose that night is that was the night with the least amount of problems. Hmm. Huh. So, and because that was definitely not the best night. The 26th is by far the best night. In my opinion, I think 326 is probably the show of the year. It's just, it's magical. That's just my opinion. But um, yeah, it just took a lot of work to, um, to get that one clean. And uh, I think it was worth it. You know, I think it was, the yeah. whole thing was worth it.
Well, I'm excited not to, to spoil things for our listeners, but that is the show that we have randomly selected for next week, which is just funny oh, that wow. it's come up now. So <laughs> stay tuned awesome. next week, dear listeners, and you can find out what you think about it. Um, wow. And that's also, that's Dave's Picks, I believe. Dave's Picks 14. Yes. Yeah. At the Academy of Music in New York. That's right. It's next week's show. Um, um, and, and you're welcome to come back, Charlie, and we can talk about that next week. I'm more than happy to, man. I'll talk about that show all day long. I mean, there's so much to talk about. As a matter of fact, here's a little known fact for you. Okay. Um, every time I did one of my Grateful Dead dance parties, I would start it with the Mr. Charlie from that show. Nice. Ooh. Good call. I think it was that show. I'm pretty sure it was that one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was that one. Can you uh, can you tell us in the audience what these dance part Grateful Dead dance parties were? Well, be- before the pandemic hit and destroyed the industry, music industry or the entertainment industry, um, I had gotten a um, I had gotten a bunch of stuff from either raw or from, from various places, and I wasn't allowed to share it. And I said, "Can I play it for some friends?" And they said, "I can play it for friends." As long as nobody gets a copy, I say, can I play it for like a lot of friends at once? And they said, <laughs> sure. And I said, how about like a big theater full of people with a big light show? And they said, is there money involved? I'm like, well, no, we're not, we're not, nobody's getting the recordings. We're not trying, it's nothing like that. And they said, they said, okay. So um, I was able to do it. I did one in the theater with, with uh, the Allman Brothers um, projectionist. And that was pretty wild. I did a few in some clubs. I did a tour with David Gans over the summer a few years back. And he would do a set of his, he'd play his music. Then I'd come and I would do some, um, do my dance party thing. And, and, uh, and it was kind of fun to do. Cause I got to, I got to play a lot of stuff for people. And the thing was, is I thought people would be really excited to hear the stuff mm-hmm. that they hadn't heard before. But from the feedback I got, they were more interested in hearing the versions that I would want to play. So I started making a playlist of the stuff that I thought was the best, like shakedown from 1231. Yeah, exactly. Just the stuff that's just like, buckle up, check this stuff out. You may not know about these versions of these songs, but right. And now, um, just because I, I missed it. What, what was the shakedown that you said? 123181. Okay. And okay. The mix is phenomenal, and the and uh, like the scrawled fire from eleven one seventy nine I played, which is really cool at the light show. Thanks. But um, yeah, um, there's just there's a lot of a lot of fun things in there. There's just a lot of fun things. I enjoy doing it, and the best part is there's a there's a million bands out there playing Grateful Dead. Not one of them has got Jerry Garcia. And yeah. my, but my dance party had Jerry Garcia at concert volume <laughs> in a theater, in a big theater. And that was pretty cool to be able to do that because it was concert volume. And it's kind of like me at home in my stereo sitting in my office is blasting Grateful Dead, you know. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to I'd just love to go do this with some people. And it was, you know, I just told the people you can dance, you can twirl, you can do whatever it is that you want to do to, to the music. Don't be afraid. Just close your eyes and have fun, man. That's so and cool. it was a lot, it was really it was really cool. It really was. I I would love to be able to do it on the road, more. man. Come you out, know, I had been out to the East Coast. My booking agent retired, <laughs> and um, 
and that caused a little bit of a problem because then the pandemic hit. So, right, right. you know, it's, it's kind of it's just not the same right now. But I would love to at some point, you know, I did some festivals and I did one festival where when they were changing over this the stage for different bands, I was out there playing Grateful Dead stuff from front yeah. of house. I just, you know, and that was fun, too. You know, just being able to play it. And it's it's just an excuse for people for me to play this stuff for people. Cause I want, I want everybody to hear this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And you know, what's available on the archive is, a, is a way that people can still access the grateful dead. Even, you know, I'm a millennial I think game might be a millennial. I don't know what knob is, but you know, we are not of, uh, the generation that should be listening to this music, but it's just, it's so accessible and so available and it's all for free. And it sounds incredible. Thanks to uh, the good work of, of yourself and, and others on the archive. So, you know, it's honestly, a pretty cool thing. It's so cool. And, and honestly, like we wouldn't be here without all that good work. So like, we are so thankful and right on. Uh, yeah. It's definitely really cool to, to talk about this stuff. Any, any more questions from, uh, from you guys? Uh, I have one actually. Um, okay. let's talk about venues. Do you have okay? Do you have a preferred venue? And by preferred, anything that you can, anything that that just well, seemed like 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 your night went easy at you know a certain venue versus you know ugh, this venue is going to be a chore. It never sounds right, etc., etc., etc. Well, I've seen I've seen the Grateful Dead play in a movie theater. It was the Capitol Theater Passaic, and I've seen them in a college gymnasium at UVM, and I've seen them in the stadiums like we all have. Right. But, you know, when it comes to, to recording, there's certain venues that, that have a certain sound to it, like Shoreline's got a sound, and you just, mm. it's just it's because of its tent, and it's a cool sound. And if you get a good recording there, it's just so cool. But some venues, you can't get past their sound, like, yeah. like um, Worcester. I can spot a Worcester Centrum recording. And these are this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just I can hear it because I have a trained ear from all the millions of tapes I've worked on. I'm so used to hearing these different things. And um and uh but there's some places that have just got like like look at the Fillmore in San Francisco. It's such a great venue, but it's a box and it's a it's a challenge to get a good mix in there, it's a real challenge to get a good recording in there. But, you know, with Grateful Dead, um, I was surprised at how bad the Kaiser sounded when I was there in February 89. And, I mean, it's if you if you think about it, when it, when the band plays an indoor venue, the speakers yeah. are hang down, right? right. They're mounted on the they're, – they're hanging down from the, from, the, from the ceiling. What they did at the Kaiser, I guess the, the roof couldn't support the PA that they wanted to hang or, get, or whatever. Maybe the specs didn't work out for Dan Healy, but they used their outdoor thing where they had the they just build it from the ground up. Okay. And I just didn't think I, I don't know what it was. There's something I, I mean, there was something about the sound there. I always thought because the recordings are usually pretty good there. I thought, you know, the front of board recording sounded good. Mm -hmm. And uh and the Ultra Matrix recordings sound really good there. And I was just surprised. I thought it would have sounded better. Then like a couple of days later, we're at the LA Forum. I thought that place had a really nice, warm sound, you know? 
that was a really, really, or they changed it to Great Western Forum, whatever they were calling it back then. And uh, that, but that had a really nice warm sound to it. I thought the garden always had a nice sound to it. Nice. But uh, yeah, Cal Expo was another, another one. Um, I, as for venues that I've not been to, but I've never really been impressed with recordings from, uh, honestly, Frost Amphitheater. Mm. It's just, I don't know what it is. I've just never heard. They're mid-rangey, they're, they're missing this, they're missing that, you know, just from an, I mean, talk about the audience recordings, you know, the boards, the boards are boards, and they're yeah. going to sound consistent, you know, but, um, yeah, there's just something about that. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I've had like four tapers, five tapers in the last two years, give me their frost recordings from all different years, and, and, you know, they're clear, but they're just not full, you know? Yeah, they don't, they don't have that that punch. Like, have you ever heard the Odie Brothers War Mike mix? It's a front of board recording from September third, nineteen eighty five, Starlight in Kansas City. It's, Not off yes, the top of my head. They had two microphones that were omnidirectional, which is a full three hundred and sixty degrees, and then they had two very directional microphones. They had them split, and they had a mixer and this whole thing, and it's just one of those recordings that you hear, and you're just like, oh my gosh. It's like you're there. And, you know, so I kind of I kind of think that, you know, you know how recordings, how good they could be, so you kind of start holding things up to a different standard because you know how good they could be and should be. But, yeah. I don't know, just, yeah. There's some, have- I mean, I think that venue sounds great, the Starlight. Nice. Do you, as like an audience member, do you have venues that you prefer over others? Yeah, you know, I like the garden because they just rock. You know, I the whole thing is, they're they're when when the Grateful Dead are on tour on the East Coast, they're a rock band. Hmm. Sure. And I I mean I grew up in the East Coast and I saw the Grateful Dead there for ten years before moving out to California, and um, and it was it was so it was so different. It was just absolutely so different. And then I went back to New York again, and uh, I was like, they were just rocking so hard. I mean, I was like, wow, I forgot, I forgot how it can be, you know? Yeah. It, it really is just so different. Well, I would argue that the the show that we're listening to this week, March third, eighty seven, was pr- it was out in um, the Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland, but it was pretty damn rocking. Um, it's a good show. It's a really good show. Um, probably does not get as much love as uh, people uh, should, uh, but that's why we're we're gonna um, talk about it tonight. That's, um, I think that's because the night play. before, yeah, people people talk about the night before so much, and you know, mm-hmm. it, it's just I never even heard the first night until David Gans had played it on the radio once because all I ever listened to was was March second. Then I heard March third, and I was like, wow, this is really good. Really good. Speaking of March 3rd, 1987, let's go ahead and get right on into our main event for the evening. Once again, that is March 3rd, 1987 at the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center in the wild and wonderful city of Oakland, California. <laughs> um, set one kicked off with a fantastic Quinn the Eskimo. Then we got into Greatest Story Ever Told, Loser, New Minglewood Blues, 
my personal favorite, Tons of Steel, uh, Cassidy, uh, Mississippi Half Step, and then set one ended with Promised Land. Fig, right Fig what were your thoughts on <laughs> set one? All right, yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. So, um, I thought it was great. Uh, Quinn the Eskimo, uh, Mighty Quinn was just fun and loose, which I thought was a setup uh, for the entire evening. We get into greatest story, and and this one can be kind of you know this is a fun song, and and it can actually be funny at times. I thought this was a funny version. I really yeah. like Jerry's uh, like call and responses to Bobby's verses, just like the licks Jerry was playing in response to Bobby's verses, were they're just funny, and it was just great to hear. Uh, loser, I, uh, th- there was an excellent Jerry solo, but credit goes to all the musicians, especially Brent's Hammond B3 for accentuating what he's doing, and I liked. Um, Brent's solo on that. New Mingle with Blues, I wrote that this was an up-tempo bop. Um, it was interesting. He said Oakland Phillies, which is you know what he always says. Um, this is what Bobby always says. You know, wherever he is, it's these these Phillies. And it just took me on this weird baseball um, mind trip where I was like, well, the Philadelphia Athletics went to Oakland, and now he's saying Oakland Phillies, and in my own head that that was um, funny. And clearly it wasn't. I'm going to keep going. Uh, that's a good no, that's, that's a good, you know what? That's pretty cool. I didn't catch that, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but uh, I'm a Philly guy. So like for me, that was like, wait a second, Oakland, Philly, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, the band uh, did a good job of playing past the solo. I thought all three soloists did great, but Jerry was ripping. Uh, Bobby's slide solo was mostly painless, which was actually, you know, pretty good for, for, <laughs> pretty good for the night. Um, we get into tons of steel, and I thought this was a good version. It was, it is not. I will uh, beg to differ with my friend Game. It was not my favorite um, uh, Brent song, and there's also this very annoying low harmony. I don't know who was doing the low harmonies uh, that night, but I it's hard to slide. I yeah, okay, <laughs> that's what I kind of would have figured. It's hard to slip under Brent. It, like that's a really hard place to go, and and Phil is just not a strong enough vocalist to to you know fit that role. But it is what it is. Uh, Cassidy, this was the highlight of the night so far. Mm. Everyone was really working together well. Uh, Phil was very high in the mix. Um, I really liked the transition back into the flight of the seabird section. They, they nailed it that night. And then half step, um, really really good version throughout. Jerry really propels things into the stratosphere with his solo. Uh, after they crossed the Rio Grande part, uh, Rio Grandio part, it was just this really, you know, after the the solo, we got into this awesome jazzy jam with those final two chords, and the audience started clapping to the beat, and the band was having fun. I wish it it was a moment I wish could go on forever. Um, I really wanted them to go back into the across the Rio Grandio, but instead they went into a really great, awesome, rocking version of the Promised Land. And it was a really great close to a really great first set. So I'm going to kick it over to... I'll kick it over to Nob, but Nob, feel free to play Hot Potato if you'd like as well. Sure. I'll I'll go. Why not? Uh, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, this show, this set. Um, I thought Quinn was a fun way to open the show. I'll throw out for the, the trivia and, and history heads uh, that this was the only time the Grateful Dead ever opened a show with the Mighty Quinn. Oh, it's um, like a perfect opener. Yeah, they usually did it as an encore pretty consistently. But 
this was a fun subversion of that. And it was a really fun energy to open the show with. Um, really enjoyed the greatest story ever told. Uh, some tight instrumental performances from the band. It's not my favorite Bobby vocal like delivery of that song I've ever heard. I but like he does it. get more comfortable with it as the night goes on. Uh, I think it's just because his voice cracks on that first line and that threw me. But... <laughs> As someone who sings high notes in a band, I have to, uh, <laughs> I, I have to give him some sympathy there. Uh, to me, things really start hitting the stride at Loser. That was the first song of the night to really do it for me. Jerry is super on, both vocally and guitar-wise. Jerry's solo is really nice, uh, and the way that it's supported by the band is really cool. I, I especially love what the drummers are adding to this loser. Mm -hmm. um, fun energy on Minglewood. Again, shout out to the drummers for a really lively drum part. Uh, to me, it goes from a good Minglewood to a great Minglewood as soon as Jerry starts playing his solo. It's a really strong solo. Uh, Brent also gets a really killer solo. Uh, Bobby also takes a solo. Uh, and before the usual... <laughs> Before the usual above-the-fretboard shenanigans that he likes to do, I thought it was a pretty good solo. And then we get to the, the squeaking, and I'm like, okay. But overall, I really enjoyed this I, see, I would say it's more of a squealing than a squeaking, but go ahead. Sure. Sure. Yeah, as long as we're using these kinds of words. Um, so... Then we get into the Tons of Steel. Uh, it's, I don't know, it was a little slow for what I want out of Tons of Steel, but that's a more personal thing. It's not a bad run of the song by any stretch. Uh, Brent had some great vocal deliveries. Again, I gotta shout out the drummers because they really are on all night tonight. Uh, and by the end of it, I was really into it, which was nice. Uh, Cassidy, I am with you. Cassidy is the highlight of set one for me. Uh, conversely, to the Tons of Steel. I thought it was a particularly speedy Cassidy. Uh, the whole jam I would describe as like a bop. It was very much a boppy kind of jam. Uh, and I loved what Phil was bringing to this Cassidy. Some really nice Phil work. Uh, and then a really fun Mississippi half step. Uh, it's, it's just a strong rendition. The first half swings in the way you want it to. It's a nice, like, dance in time. The second half leans into that cooldown, but it doesn't totally throw away the energy. The crowd is still into it. Jerry's especially on fire. My notes just say Phil with a little heart next to it. Oh. Like, it, I really enjoyed this Mississippi half step. And then into a real bop of a promised land to, to bring things home with this first set. Uh, so yeah, all in all, I really liked it. Uh, to say something that I never quite expected to say on this podcast, <laughs> what did you think, Charlie Miller? <laughs> um, uh, well, I could, um, I can see Jerry smiling when I, when I uh, hear it. Nice. It's uh, the Mighty Quinn. I thought it was a really cool place to, to put it in the set list. Because they had been kind of moving it around a little bit at that point, mm. but and then it went back to where it was. I think they had opened up a second set with it at at Oakland during the New Year's run, and it was kind of moving around. But but it's it, it as we all know, it mostly was the encore. And I just like when they put songs somewhere where they don't belong. They just you just get the impression that they're having fun, or they're in a yeah. good mood, or you know somebody's just thinking outside the box, and anything can happen. 
kind of like sticking Mississippi half step in the end, of, you know, towards the end of a first set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that, that usually opens the show. But I thought it was a really good version of Mighty Quinn. And I, I actually love The Greatest Story because there's just the interplay with, with, um, with Brent and Jerry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one thing I noticed after, after Jerry came back from his, his coma. Mm-hmm. He was more um, more active, you know, visually, and his playing was just more exciting. And he, he just the way he looked at Brent, just the way he just always looking at Brent smiling. I just think that's really cool. Um, I, I, I too, uh, <laughs> I do agree about Minglewood. <laughs> you know, that's and uh, it's it's one of my favorite tunes to see live. But when Bobby starts doing his thing past, you know, at the end of the neck, there it's just it is a bit <laughs> much. Well, you're lucky we you didn't know. get a rooster tonight. Yeah, yeah. Just the look on Jerry's face, you know, <laughs> it's when he's doing that stuff. Um, <laughs> but I do love Times of Steel. You know, sometimes Brent and Phil can get that harmony thing working. More often they wouldn't. But it's I always thought it was a fun tune. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's something about this this whole this whole night that it's got a really magical feel to it. Um, but I do love the the loser. You know, I also agree with, with what you guys were saying. How when they got to loser, it kind of things just seemed like it, it changed. It kind of stepped up a bit. You know, it's yeah. like things really started to click, and uh, it's just it's just um, it's just really good. You know, Jerry seems really into it. Like his heart felt. I do like the I do like Cassidy. I think I think the jam, you know, it could have gone on a little bit longer, but it's kind of what they got is really good. Yeah. You know, it seems it seems like they're they're having fun and everything has a fresh feel to it. I I, I thought, you know, just it was a new year and um I think these shows were going a lot better than the shows they had done a couple of months earlier or a month earlier or whatever. And uh I really like the playing. I love the half step. It just just Jerry's voice and just his emotion, you know. And and Promised Land's a good. It's Promised Land's Promised Land. You know, it's it's always a fun rocking tune. But uh, you know, they seem to to go a little bit extra. You know, do that just extra little bit and really bring it bring it to the set to an end. And I, I like that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, game. Uh- I will home. give my very overall general thoughts on set one. Uh, Quinn the Eskimo was great. Uh, I did enjoy Greatest Story. Loser was okay for me. Um, New Minglewood was good. Whoa. I, yeah, Whoa. When, when you... When, when, <laughs> when, what the hell are you talking when, about? When you, it, was the high, like, it really kicked off. I was like, it really kicked off during Quinn the Eskimo. We were already a couple songs into it. <laughs> um, New Minglewood, good. Uh, tons of Steel. I'm, 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 I'm a Brett fanboy, so whenever he's taking lead, that gets my ears. I enjoyed that. Cassidy, good. Mississippi Half Step, good. Promised Land, good. Um, overall, just a real good set one. Uh, set two, a little spoiler alert, has my favorite thing of this whole show, uh, which would be. Can I guess? Does it give me some uh, love? Yeah, please don't say it's the it Ico. Is. No, it's got to be give me some love. It is the Ico Ico. Ico. I loved it. I loved it, but. Um, 
It sounded like five psychos being played over top of each other. Oh, yeah, for like the first two minutes, I'll agree with you on that. And then the whole Ico. Someone who has no patience. I got it does, the first two minutes. It does eventually life. settle down like the whole band knows what they're playing. Anyway. That's hilarious. Anyway, Jen, Jen too gave us a wonderful rendition of Ico Ico. Then we got uh, Saint of Circumstance, Terrapin Station, uh, Drums in Space, a, another excellent rendition of Give Me Some Lovin', uh, Wharf Rat, Throwing Stones, Touch of Grey, and an encore of Broke Down Palace. Uh, Knob, what were your thoughts on set two? Sure, I liked it. Um, I, and I have more thoughts in addition. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with you game. I think this is a good Ico. I, I kind of said this point a minute ago, but I, when I first started listening to it, it's, it's with the addition of the horns and the Neville brothers, there's a lot going on in this Ico Ico, and it definitely takes everybody a couple of minutes to get on the same page as each other. It was only five minutes long. No, it was like ten. <laughs> no, um, no, it was yeah, a long it's, it's, Ico. it's ten minutes. It's it's ten minutes. All right, yeah, yeah. all right, it's ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end of it, I do think it's a blast. I think it's a really fun rendition. My my note literally describes it as a grower. By the end of it, I'm very into it. I'm not sure which Neville brother is singing uh, some vocals on here, but it is really fun hearing him trade off lines with Jerry. You can just kind of hear the joy between the two of them as they kind of push each other to sing more and find more things within this song. I really enjoyed the Ico. Um, a good sense of drive on Saint of Circumstance. Uh, there wasn't a lot that like really blew me away compared to some other songs tonight, but I really enjoyed the uh, the vocal interplay between Bobby and Brent, leading to Bobby yelling out, "Just exactly what the fuck you gonna do?" Which was really uh, and, and not the always the energy wild. you get from saying, "Oh yeah, crowd went yeah. nuts." That's so funny. All he has to do is drop an f bomb, and the crowd's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> oh yeah. Um, Terrapin <laughs> is fun. I. Found myself liking it a little bit less on the re-listen. First listen, I was like, this Terrapin is one of the highlights of the night. Second mm -hmm. listen, I mellowed a little bit, but I do still really enjoy it. Um, I, it especially gets cooking when we leave the lady with a fan section and get into the Terrapin station section. The drummers, I know I keep saying this, but the drummers are on fire during Terrapin. They go nuts, and it is really cool to hear. Um... Short drums, not nothing really particularly notable besides a really clean transition into space, which I was impressed with. Uh, it was a very like delay effect heavy space. I described it as like like spooky cave sounds. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else, but it really just felt like we were spooking our way through this like dark, dank cave. Um, and then. A pretty strong transition into Give Me Some Lovin', which immediately amps up the crowd. Um, I will say that I really enjoyed the, the Phil and Brent harmonies on this Give Me Some Lovin' compared to the Tons of Steel earlier. Though I will say it got a little busy when you added in Bobby and Jerry adding their extra parts. It didn't always click. You mean vocal parts? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's hard, the, it's hard to do. It's hard to just it is. Layer, it's, you know? Four part lives. harmonies in general are really tough to pull off. I'm not. I'm not faulting them here. It was just. 
that that stood out to me because I was like, wow, these are some really good harmonies. Okay. <laughs> Those are some harmonies. Um, now, conversely, we get ourselves into Warfrat, and this is one of my highlights of the night, without question. I really enjoyed the Warfrat, really enjoyed Jerry's vocal delivery here. Uh, it's on the gruffer side, but there is an emotionality to it that really makes it work. The, uh, just, it's a really tight song. The band nails the transition into the 3-4 part of Warfrat, and it sounds almost by accident but they like perfectly get into the bridge of it. They really push like through this emotion to get the group harmonies in the bridge, which are really nice. I, I over the last few Warfrats that we've had on the podcast, I've been kind of building a case that Warfrat, it's a song I've always liked, but the last mm. like couple of months, I've really come to love Warfrat. Mm. I love how different they're able to make each section feel mm -hmm. like the, First couple of verses are their own thing, and then the bridge is its own thing, and then the second half of the bridge is its own thing. And once we get out of the bridge, the verse picks up and it feels like, again, its own thing. It just feels like as much of a journey compacted into a smaller package. Yeah. Uh, I really, really it's cannot speak. theatrical and, and narrative in quality. Yes, and that, that definitely speaks to me. Absolutely. Um, and then I also really enjoyed the Throwing Stones. This one's also on my list of, of highlights. A really on vocal delivery from Bob. Um, he's throwing out his voice over the course of it. I won't make any pretend. He definitely sounds better in the first two minutes of this Throwing Stones than he sounds on the last two minutes of this Throwing Stones. But God damn it, he has given his all to this song. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I love the way that Brent's keyboard part is interplaying with Bob's vocal line. Um, again, I have to shout out the drummers. Uh, the reason this Throw in Stones feels as good as it does is because they are controlling the energy just perfectly. It gets stronger and stronger as it goes on and really allows itself to get nuts in those last few minutes. Um, and I do think that it is good that they had a three-week break before another show after this one, or else Bobby's voice would have been fried. I've... <laughs> I've been to Dead & Co. shows where Bobby throws his voice out and then they make him sing five songs and set one the next night. I, I would feel bad if there was a, a March 4th, 87. Um, <laughs> and then that takes us into like a very fast touch of gray. I feel like that when I think of fast touch of grays, like it's like 83, 84, 85. I feel like by 87, it's started to simmer down a little bit into the tempo that's closer to the, like, in the dark version of the song. But this very much still has that fast piss and vinegar energy that you get from those early Touch of Greys, and it really makes it work. Um, and I, I just have to shout out a really ripping little Jerry solo. It's not long, but it's tight. Uh, this second set is more about, like, full band jams than, like, Jerry-focused solo sections. He really delivers a quick, nice little solo in Touch of Grey. Uh, and I found myself very impressed with it time and time again. Um, and then the Broke Down Encore is a lot of fun. Uh, the intro is tight. It's really good. The harmonies, similar to Warfrat, they just have this, like, pushing through pain energy that really works. 
uh, and then Jerry forgets all of the first verse because, <laughs> in true Grateful Dead fashion, like I as soon as something in... goes, Got here it. you go. I was going to say, I think he came in with the second verse for the first verse, and then realized yeah. it's a mistake, and then just stopped singing. Yes. Um, and that just seemed to energize the crowd more. The crowd uh, loved that Jerry could not remember the words, and that energy just seemed to feed back into the band. I love... Brent does this little organ lick right mm. after the first chorus as they're going into the next verse. That's just really cool. Once they've gotten past Jerry forgetting a verse, they recover very quickly. There's a really gorgeous guitar solo, and even with it, I would still consider Broke Down to be one of my highlights within this show. Um, so that's a lot of words from me, but I, I really like this one. What did you think, Fig? Um, okay, so I agree with a lot of what you said. I will never agree with your opinion about Ico, sir. That's fine. Uh, it we was... can argue about this until the end of the podcast. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. I think it was just, it was just supposed to be fun. I mean, it was Mardi Gras, and they had they had members of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, according to uh, Dead or Pod List or whatever. Dead Pod. What is it called? Dead Dead Base. According to Dead Base. Um, so there was just a lot going on. Everyone was having a good time, and it, it did not color my thoughts about Set Two because I thought Set Two was excellent as well. Um, so I guess I'll just forget that Ico ever happened and go into Saint. Which had good energy. I thought that the 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 source may have changed a little bit. It sounded more like an audience source. Um, and I mean, we have Charlie on the podcast. I can ask him how that works. Um, but let me just get through my thoughts first, and then I, I might ask that question. Um, pop that question over to him. Um, I thought it was an excellent version of Saint Jerry. Sounded great. I love uh, Phil's pushing the rhythm along. No, you know what? My notes got messed up, so I'm going to skip Saint. And go into Terrapin. Uh, Terrapin starts. Jerry has uh, was a little bit shaky on his vocals and the lyrics, but he makes up for it with some really really nice solos. Actually, whether they were delicious solos, uh, he had some nice interplay there with King Brent. Great energy uh, from Jerry and the entire band on the crescendo with the whistle is screaming section and everything thereafter. We get into drums in space, and yes, I did listen to drums in space. Um, what do you I, mean? I especially... We always listen to drums in space. Sometimes I skip drums in space. <laughs> uh, pretty good, especially space. Uh, I really like space as a transition into "Give Me Some Lovin'." Um, just hearing the band break into that, and, and Phil was the one leading the transition there, which was really cool to hear. And then we get um, uh, we get Brent's uh, Hammond B three again, just screaming in there with the "Give Me Some Lovin'." Uh, riff and would have been awesome to hear live. Some I think that's a really cool Grateful Dead moment right there. And then they kind of bring it back down with a pretty awkward transition, I thought, into Warfrat, which was a great version of Warfrat. Uh, just that transition was a little rough. Uh, we had a good uh, vocals and um, yeah, good vocals from Jerry. Uh, Phil sounded pretty nice. Jerry's first solo was incredible. Phil was really pushing the rhythm with bouncy eighth notes, especially in that, like, got up and wandered, I think, the second verse there. And that was kind of cool mm. to, yeah, to your point, Nob, you know, hearing them, uh, yeah, just kind of change the feel around. And it was interesting the, the way Phil was doing that. Um, just making it a little more bouncier and more, I don't know, kind of like someone was, like, a little more plucky, I think, is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And Phil's first solo was incredible. His second solo was incredible, too. I liked the coloring that 
um, Bobby was adding to on that second one. I really heard Bobby shine through there in the mix. We get into Throwing Stones. It had an excellent instrumental section. The band really nailed it, and the crowd went really crazy um, for that uh, instrumental section. And Touch of Grey. So I have been looking for a really great touch of gray since really we started this podcast and it's been tough i think i just i think i mentioned this in the podcast a few episodes ago but i think i found it i think it's i think this version oh. was excellent yeah and i think it was i think it actually was true to the single in both tempo tempo and feel and the rhythm mm. um maybe it was a little bit faster but it just i don't know it gave me those vibes and you know touch of gray was one of the reasons i got on the bus because i remember watching that music video so many times and so that really really hit me um i love this version i really did definitely a heady version for me um it's well played by all especially phil and broke down palace uh jerry sounded excellent i mean the the recording yeah. of jerry's vocals was just gorgeous and I, I think i actually had changed to headphones at that point and it just sounded so good uh but then he doesn't know the words and <laughs> he eventually drops out and it was just very touching the way that the fans did know the words and they helped Papa Jerry out, and that was really moving, and it was very touching. And Jerry totally returned the favor to the fans with an excellent um, solo. And he actually used some distortion on his uh, guitar at that point, which was an interesting thought. Mm. Um, and I, I wrote that it was Shades of George Harrison on that solo. Um, just a mm. really excellent, yeah. So a really special broke down. I thought, you know, certainly not like a perfectly played version, but just very special for what it was. Uh, especially coming off of uh, Jerry's coma. So um, really great set to uh, but for Ico Ico. Um, I'm going <laughs> to kick it over to Charlie uh, with a question, and then Charlie, feel free to give your review. So here's my question. So, And I don't think I'm the only one in uh, of the listeners and perhaps even hosts on this podcast who, who may have a question like this, but you know, the archive is like the Wild West, right? There's so much you know, accessible, and there's so much to do that it's it's really hard to understand what's happening, and it's hard to kind of uh, give yourself a sense of direction. And and so what I did maybe about uh, nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, was I just set up this spreadsheet and I randomized everything. And I, I randomized all the dates the Grateful Dead were, you know, performing. And I go down the spreadsheet, and each week I, p I pick a show um, off that spreadsheet, and that's the weekly show, and I feature that on Reddit, and then the last couple of years, we've had a podcast about it, okay? But again, I don't really know what I'm doing, okay? And part of, but there's like a little bit of information out there, so here's here's my question to you. So it says on the archive, it says topics, soundboard, comma, ultra matrix, comma, Charlie Miller, comma, Don yeah. Pearson. Can you... Yep. Can you define that? Can you, you know, explain exactly what all this stuff means? Because I feel like there's different versions or different sources that are being okay. intermixed. So, but I don't okay. know. This is the thing. In the summer of 86, if you listen to, like, the Alpine Valley soundboard I got, the night with the shakedown estimated eyes, mm. the, um, there's no Garcia in the mix. There's just none. And that's because, and this is something I run into as a sound guy, sometimes the guy on stage is playing guitar so loud, mm. you can fill up the room without putting him in the PA, right? Oh, it's oh. called sound reinforcement, okay? So the stuff that's amplified on the stage, the guitars, 
the bass, the organs got the the Leslie, you know, and some keyboards have some amps on there, you know, and the drums are loud, but you got things like like an electric piano or vocals. Those aren't amplified. So those are the things that you really need to turn up louder in the PA. The stuff that okay. like Phil is coming through the subs. And so it's, it's just it's just a matter of it's kind of like why um the Betty board sounds so good is because that's a recording mix. It's not a soundboard mix. A soundboard mix would be what you're getting in the room. It's like the house mix. Oh. A recording mix is a separate mix done just for the recording. So you'd put mm. on headphones and you listen to the balance of it. And um, what they started doing is they started like what they do for FM broadcast is essentially an ultra matrix where they have a stereo mic or, or, or mics out at this by the soundboard and you mix it with the board feed to make it sound kind of like the live FM broadcast. You know what I mean? Like that live sound or to make it sound or Dan Healy said it's supposed to sound like what he's hearing. Mm -hmm. And I can get into the whole technical aspect of how they set up the mics and patterns, but that might lose you because <laughs> it almost loses me at some point. <laughs> But um, you but you basically you have to delay the soundboard because the soundboard is going through from the microphones to the board through the microphone cables and that sat, travels at the speed of light because it's going through the wire. What you're hearing in the room travels at the speed of sound. Hmm. So basically, the music where Dan Healy is, the music if he had headphones on, he would hear in his headphones like a. a a third of a second before the PA sound makes its way all the way to him, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So you you time what you do is you delay the board feed to match up with the um, with the ambient mics and uh, and these guys are really good at that. Otherwise, you get a little bounce slap back kind of echoey thing. So you, you know they they align it and and they found a nice balance. But what they did at first. And which is with these recordings in, in for most of 1987 and December 86, when they first started doing this, they just set the microphone and the board feed at 50 50 and the power of the and the energy of the ambient mics was so much that it was drowning at the board. That's why some of these ultra matrixes from 87 sound like their audiences with a little bit of board mixed in because mm. essentially that's what it is. Um, at the Garden Run in the fall of 87, Steve Marcus mentioned that and they went over and they just lowered the ambient mics. So it's kind of like three quarters board feed, one quarter ambient or, or whatever it is, two thirds, one thirds. But, you know, the board is, is the heavier signal now. And that's why I think from like the fall of 87 till, you know, the next few years with the Ultra Matrixes, they're mm -hmm. balanced so nice. The 89 and the 90 recordings sound really, really good. So Don Pearson and Dan Healy came up with this. Mm. It's the reason I mentioned, give, I always mention Dan Healy. You got to credit him as being, Don Pearson made the recordings, but it's Dan Healy's mix. You know, Dan Healy's the sound guy and you got to yeah. credit him because it's his mix. And then Don Pearson was setting up per Dan Healy's instructions. He was setting up the Ultra Matrix and they had a box that, did the whole decoding thing of the with the pattern of the microphones and mixed it with the board and then sent the feed out to the patch bay where anybody and everybody apparently who worked with the band and or had 
enough Coke or whatever, <laughs> you know, to get a board patch or, or an Ultra Matrix patch. So I have a lot of shows like the January 87 um, San Francisco shows and then the, the March 87 Kaiser shows. I have both Ultra Matrix recordings and just soundboard recordings. And you can really hear the difference where one's got the room mixed in with it, one doesn't. Okay. So that's Excellent. so um yeah, and the and the cool thing is Don Pearson ran all the decks. There wasn't like twenty people hovered around there, you know, flipping their tapes. Don Pearson ran the decks. And Dan Healy's busy running sound. So okay. Don Pearson would flip all the tapes. And, you know, you flip a tape, then two seconds later, you flip the next one, then two seconds later, you flip the next one. So there's a two-second overlap between each flip. And I have, like, four copies of, of, these, of each of these March Kaiser shows. Hmm. So since there's an overlap between all of them, I was able to put it all together, and you can't tell where the flip is because it's all the same source. <laughs> you know, hmm. you, have three soundboard, you have three soundboard masters, and they all flip two seconds apart. You know, that's all you need is just that little that little millionth of a second to just overlap it, and you're good. Cool. So, well, and, uh, uh, I'm looking now. It looks like I never put out the. It looks like I did put out the. Um, looks like I put out both of these, the the Ultra Matrix and the Soundboard, I believe. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, the top two there look like they're yours. Yeah, soundboard. Yeah, this is the soundboard. That that first one was Joni Walker's. Um, that was Joni Walker's uh, masters, and then I got Don Pearson's, and then I, you know, yeah, so many of them. There's so many recordings from these shows. After they came back from Jerry's coma in December '86, mm -hmm. they started running an insane amount of decks off the board. I mean, just uh, everything changed. And, you know, it used to be that Don Pearson would have a recording. And after the show, one of the band members would be like, oh, hey, you got a tape. And he'd end up having to give it to them. So they started running multiple decks because people were, you know, in the band and the crew were really interested. Yeah. You know, but there's one thing I, I, uh, I should put, point out. I'm looking at Dead Bass and I'm looking at my recording. My recording says it's got the Neville Brothers. And according to Dead Bass, it's it's a dirty dozen brass band, hmm. not the Neville Brothers. I did so, see Neville Brothers somewhere though. I've seen Neville Brothers listed somewhere too. Yeah. So I don't know, as I was not there, I do not know. But one thing I think is kind of interesting to you know that um, about the second set, which we looked at the set list, and when I see set list, I I see patterns, and I I just I know I, I know set list. I mean, I can hear a recording and just tell you the set list of the show without looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, but this was only the fourth time that Throwing Stones had gone into Touch of Grey. Oh wow! And which is interesting because they didn't do it that much. It was either Love Light or Not Fade Away, or you know, it was just you know. It kind of kind of had a routine there, but um, yeah, this is one of the few times. I think that's kind of cool. Very cool. I think I think uh, I think there's something about Jerry's energy this set, and I agree about the drummers and Terrapin. You know, it's if I, I think people tend to forget just how much power and energy Mickey brought to the table. Yeah, you know that. I think I think 
And I think the people who are out there seeing Dead and Company and watching what Mickey's doing now and have never seen The Grateful Dead, I don't think they fully understand mm -hmm. what it was like watching him behind the kit back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, he would really, really just take things to the next level. Mainly 85, you know, it's just when I really started to notice that, you know, listening to the recordings and, oh my gosh, you know, listening to Cumberland or Samson, it's like, wow, listen to drummers. This is just crazy. Mm -hmm. When yeah, when Jerry came back after the coma, and he was he was clean, and uh, it seemed like there there was more of a, a unity with the band, you know. And yeah. I I remember I remember seeing them a few weeks later at Hartford, and I was sitting right right behind. I was sitting in the section off to the side, right behind Brent, on the side there, and I remember watching the band hanging out on the side of the stage watching the drummers do their thing they didn't yeah. like all run stage and just go lock themselves in their whatever or whatever they would do they were all sitting there watching it and and that was just kind of cool that really yeah. that really stuck with me and you know that was as a, i thought that was really special that's awesome um so any any more thoughts from you charlie about uh, the second set there um <laughs> I'm not going near that Ico. I'm staying out of that one. <laughs> um, no, nah, man, just you know, like like you said, you know, Bobby drops an F bomb, and and that that realizes, you know, we all got we all go nuts over that, and just, you know, screaming, screaming, swearing, Bobby is just yeah. fun. But um, there was, I think, I think there's something about Terrapin Station, um, in, in 1987, that is kind of you had to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, just Jerry was so animated. You know, it, it was it was really it was really special. It really awesome. was. New Year's eighty seven has one of my favorite uh, posts, like Keith Terrapins. I really enjoy the one from New Year's eighty seven. Yeah, that is a good one. I remember that night very well, sitting home recording it off the radio. Nice. Yeah, and I do think that there is on YouTube a, a video of three three eighty seven. Really? Oh yeah. You know what? I think they. I think um, I'm always being asked, "Hey, do you have audio upgraded audio? We're putting out the video." Mm -hmm. And I think that was definitely one of those. I don't know who made all those videos. I'm not. I don't really watch a lot of video, but I always loved yeah. helping people with the audio for it. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Well, to your point about you know Jerry being animated, you know, like we can actually yes. see it on YouTube. You can really see it. Yeah. Um, sure that's the case. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, game. Good. Well, you know what? Hey, I got one more yeah. thing to stick in there. Yeah. yeah. Jerry, Jerry, and Brent's harmonies on "Broke Down Palace." Mm. You know, um, Brent for a while in '86 was. He was a little too drunk, and the harmony was kind of a, a drunken thing. But um, in 87, uh, like right around this time, was where it started just cleaning everything up so nicely. And I thought Jerry and Brent really sounded nice together. And yeah. I think Phil's bass playing during the Broke Down has a really great tone to it. And, um, and the subtleties of what he's playing, are just, it, just makes, it just brings it all together. So cool. Yeah, I I often find Phil to kind of be the magic touch of like what 
separates like a good show from a phenomenal show tends to be like what Phil is providing uh, for the rest of the band to kind of play off of. Yeah. All right, game. You want to uh, give us your thoughts, or just uh, take us back? I will go ahead and wrap us up and take us home. Um, overall, I thought set two was good. Um, of course, my favorites would be the Ico Ico and the Gimme Some Lovin'. <laughs> they were both. They were both standard. right. <laughs> um, but no, really, I thought the whole set was good. Um, really enjoyed. Uh, broke down as the um, encore. Um, and and. Charlie, you said it best. Um, really felt like Brent's harmonies really meshed well with Jerry. And um, I know a lot of people think 89 is the um, one of the better years for the dead, myself included. And um, you can kind of hear some of that coming together um, in this show, especially with Brent and Jerry at the end of Program Palace. So, yeah, excellent show um, all around. Let's go ahead and do our bookkeeping for the evening. Um, Book of the Dead. Charlie, I'm not sure if you're familiar with our Book of the Dead, but our Book of the Dead um, is shows we would consider, what would we say, like top five for us? Um, I, guess just, I don't know, just, just generally general. exceptional. I've, well, I, like, what you, what I'm, you I'm the pickiest about it, but we, it doesn't have to be picky about what makes your Book of the Dead. Because everything's digital these days and nothing is printed out, so um, yeah, yeah, it's a PDF doesn't matter how long it dead. is. <laughs> I will um, of the dead start the yeah. book of the dead, and I'm actually going to say yeah. yes to this one. Um, kind of hard for All me right. to find any 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 flaws for for my musical taste. So uh, yeah, it's a yes for me. Oh, but book of the dead, yes or no? Yeah, I'm I'm generally the pickiest. I've I've received hate mail over choices before but um i haven't actually but i think it's fun to pretend um but no i i like you honestly like what get, i i kept thinking about this because i was like what i put this book of the dead what i put this book of the dead but truly like game said i really can't find fault with this one there's truly no moment that that loses me and so i think that this has to make my book of the dead um, so I'm going to echo, except for Ico, which... And you're kind of, allowed to be wrong about play. that. Well, I would just ask, um, if this is not sacrilege, for a game to just take out the beginning of set two, and then it would no. certainly this make show has dead. This show no. has made my book of the dead, <laughs> and this Ico has made my book of the Icos. Just saying. Yeah, if anything, oh I'm underlining God. the Ico on this one. Wow, I've been outvoted. I felt this but, strongly about it before we've started recording, but I do think that your dislike of it has only emboldened me. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I could uh, I'm glad I could help uh, help you there. Um, but we, we still have Charlie uh, to go, but uh, frequent listeners will know that if all three of the uh, co-hosts agree um, that the show does make a Book of the Dead, instead of playing one set... Game, we uh, will be playing the complete show of March third, nineteen eighty-seven. Except for Ico, Ico. No, and not only will I be including Ico, I will also include a secondary Ico <laughs> after the encore broke down Palace. So you get to hear it not only once but twice. Because <laughs> your Ico rock block, Charlie Miller. Would this be one that 
makes your book of the dead. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. I mean, just for the war frat, um, you know, the, the, just that soulfulness Jerry's got, you know, and, and, you know, how do you follow up three, two you know, and I think they did a really, really strong attempt. And I think, I think they accomplished it. I think they did the job, man. They, they got, they went there. You know, they, people definitely got their money's worth at this show. Oh yeah. And then some. And then some. Um, we will not go into the witch set voting since this show has made our Book of the Dead. Uh, we will move right into the show MVP voting. Um, and I think I'm just going to kick it off again. Um, I'm going to go with Brent. Um, just because. Um, mm. Give me some loving. Uh, we got tons of steel. And we had Killer Harmonies with Jerry and Broke Down. That's three for three for me. King Brent is my MVP. Big, who's your show MVP? Huh. Um, I I think it's Jerry, <laughs> but I'm gonna say Phil just because um, <laughs> it's too easy to say Jerry. I mean, this was a really great Jerry night. Uh, but I really like what Phil was doing throughout. I, I did mention him a, a bunch of times, and and maybe it was the mix, or maybe it was just the both the mix and his playing. But Phil really shined tonight, so I'm gonna give it to Dump. him. Show MVP. Yeah. I've I basically spoiled this through all of the things that I said during the show, but it, it's the drummers for me. It is very much uh, the whole, you know, the whole band is on. It is a great night from Jerry. It is a great night from Phil. It is a great night from Brent. But throughout, I just found myself going, <laughs> God damn, those drummers it are killing it. it so good. I have to give it to the Rhythm Devils. Nice. Mr. Farley. Very nice. Oh. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, personally, I, I think that the MVP is Mickey because I know the drummers play as one unit. And I, I think that Mickey is really inspiring Billy to go that little bit further. And, and once again, that jam in Terrapin and like towards the end of Terrapin, just that whole buildup. I just think Mickey's like that the whole night. It's kind of, I just think they're all so happy to be back with Jerry being okay. Yeah. And I just think Mickey, Mickey's just that, you know, I've never ever given Mickey an MVP before. And I think this night he gets it. All right. Nice. We did have one Reddit comment this week on this show from old faithful feisty passenger 9158 and old feisty. <laughs> let us know that this show, like all of your favorite shows game really have do. a, a feisty really passenger uh, yeah. um feisty passenger has let us Thank know you. that this show provides them with such fun memories so yes feisty passenger i agree this was a killer show next week next week as knob mentioned at the start of the show we are featuring what some may say is the best show of 1972 and what Charlie Miller thinks is the hardest show to master. Uh, 3-26-1972, the Academy of Music in New York, New York. This was a beautiful Sunday. Uh, I'm guessing it was a beautiful Sunday in March. Um, I don't know the weather back then. Um, this was also featured on Dave's Picks 14. Um, and truthfully, this just looks like a stellar and long 1972 set list. Oh yeah, I'm it's so. It's the excited. show of the year. 
It is. Prove me wrong. <laughs> I, yeah. Start with the year. <laughs> I'm excited to listen to what I can only assume to be a 20 minute good loving and to be the, a staunch defender of it. Can't wait to come in here next week. Be like, I was done with it four minutes in. <laughs> four, 14 minutes before it ended. We do get a Mr. Yeah. Oh, we get a Mr. Charlie. I, I think we yeah. pretty much get their entire yeah. catalog from 1972 in the show next week. It's um, these are but I'm not mad at it sorry. because yeah. it's all good. So looking forward. Uh, yeah. As always, looking please go it, yeah. ahead and smash that subscribe button and like and share with any and all of your Grateful Dead loving friends and family. Of course, you may find us at wherever podcasts are downloaded. However, if you happen to use a service that would loosely rhyme with Jason and the Oregonot Fi. I definitely said that. I definitely said that last word. I said that wrong, but it works. Um, if you would happen to use this sort of stuff, once again, rhymes with Jason and the Argonaut. Here we go. Yeah, there you go. Argonautify. I wish we had the. Yeah. I, I wish we had the soundboarding could do the clapping sound effects. Add okay. add one for yourself. You will post. not Working find on, us on that <laughs> However, you will find us on the majority of other podcast platforms. As always, if you do like to download or listen to your podcast the old-fashioned way, you may do that at helponthewaypod.podbean.com. If you would like to communicate with us via email, please feel free to do so at helponthewaypod at gmail.com. And of course, you may always communicate with us on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash Grateful Dead. Any parting words for Knob, Fig, or Mr. Charlie? I'm going to go listen to the 3387. <laughs> it was a fantastic show. It's oh, a fan. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been listening I might to, listen to it all week. Yeah, you know, um, and and then three twenty six seventy two. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Charlie, thank you so much for your time, man. This was this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I know. And truth, yeah. we'd love to have you back uh, anytime that you're free to do so. We do this every week, and uh, we have a lot of fun with it, as you can tell. Absolutely, I'd love to. We are in your debt, uh, sir. Right. All righty. Thank you <laughs> once again for listening yep. to this week's Help on the Way podcast. Charlie, please don't let that beautiful porterhouse steak get cold. Please, as soon as this is over, make sure you eat that wonderful dinner. And to all of our listeners, please stick around for the complete show, March 3rd, 1987. Thank you once again for listening to Help on the Way podcast. <laughs> Thank you.
monuments Some are jotting down notes Everybody's in despair Every girl and boy When the Eskimo gets here Everybody's gonna jump for joy Come on without Come on within You'll not see nothing like a mighty queen Come on without Come on within You'll not see nothing like a mighty queen Like my comet, like the rest I like my sugar sweet I jump and kills cake and paste Not my cup of meat Everybody's needs a tree Feeding pigeons on a limb When the Eskimo gets here Every pigeon's gonna run to him Come on without Come on within You'll not see nothing like Come on without, come on with you. You'll not see nothing like a mighty queen. Inside of my heart Tell me where you put And I'll tell you who to call Nobody can get no sleep With someone on everyone's toes When when the Eskimo gets here Everybody's gonna want a dose Come on without Come on within You'll not see nothing like a mighty Come on with it You'll not see nothing like a mighty Oh, we'll be, you'll not see nothing like a 
run for every ace I've drawn. I could almost tell the size of Beverly. Don't you push me, baby, cause I'm moaning low. You know I'm only in it for the gold.
crazy Some says I am, some says I am Doctor call me crazy Some says I am, some says I am Preacher man call me sinner But his little girl call me a saint Couple shots of whiskey Women round here still looking good Couple shots of whiskey Open finish still looking good Couple more shots of whiskey I'm going down to make room T for Texas, 
using its teeth on Timbuktu. See right here in Oakland, with little girls know what to do. I was born in a desert, I was raised in a last end. From their other men. Then I'll do it, do it again. Then I'm a number one occupation. Stealing women's from their other men.
Left by the silver street. I can tell by the marking left to Raven Street. Fairly well, 
Let your life proceed by its own design Nothing to tell Let the words be yours, I'm done with mine Yeah. 
the Rio Grande Across the lazy river Across the Rio Grande Across the lazy river
That Greyhound and Brody passed rallying on across Caroline. Stopping Charlotte by past Rockland, we never would meet it late. He was 90 miles out of Atlanta by sundown, road across Georgia State. Had full of trouble, it turned into a struggle up way across Alabama. With my hand broke down, left us all stranded in downtown Birmingham.
be back in a little bit.
Here's where the rainbow ends And if this ain't the real thing Well, it's close enough to pretend But when that wind blows When the night's about to fall I can hear the sirens call The circus of the sound the rain falling down now, rain falling down, rain falling down. Pulling on the set of my reason, holding the knees of my blues. I think it's a bit increasing, but I'll pull Just don't know, Lord, it's 
hard to say I'm gonna go for it for sure Cause I know something's gonna happen anyway Sure won't know what I'm going for Top of the mountain you can see far and wide I'm gonna go for it for sure But you can't see that other mountain on the other side now Sure won't know what I'm going for Beside him stands a man 
a soldier from the looks of him who came through many fights but lost in love. open and a girl is standing there eyes of light with glowing hair all the fancy paints is fair she takes a fan and throws it in the lion's den of you to gain me tell will risk uncertain pain of hell I will not forgive you if you will not take the chance Sailor gave at least a try the soldier being much too wise strategy was his strength not disaster
Well, my temperature's rising, got my feet on the floor. Twenty people rocking, cause I wanna go more. Let me in, baby, I don't know what you got. But you better take it easy, this place is high ground. So glad you made it. So glad you made it. You gotta give me some love and give me, give me some love.
down by the docks of the river
said to him I'm sure she's been I'm sure she's been I said to him I'm sure she's been sure Brushes, it doesn't seem Call it home, you'll be 
for place, so it looks from space. A closer look reveals the human race. Full of hope, full of graces, the human face. But a well, There's a fear down here we can't forget. Always awake, always around Singing ashes, ashes all fall down Ashes, ashes all fall down And watching the ball revolve in the night time falls And again the hunt begins And again the blood wind calls By and by again The moments never rise The darkness never goes from sunset's eyes No, no! Sidewalks and rolls streets Sticking there, dividing up meat Nightmares book Because of hate, you and me yeah. Flash blade, it get on night We're looking for a fire Throwing stones, singing ashes, ashes all fall out. Ashes, ashes all fall out. Gummas are in strap balls and roll the dice. Anyway, they fall, guess who gets to pay the price? Mummy Green, full of gray and gray. Slinkers, instead of poor today. So they keep the dance and shake their bones And the politicians throwing stones Singing ashes, ashes all falling Ashes, ashes all falling Heartless powers try to tell us what to think If the spirit's sleeping then the flesh is ink Yeah, history's page, it is dust the garden stone Future's here, we are it, we are on our own On our own On our own
this place in empty stone With that shining ball of blue You can call her home So the kids they dance and shake their bones And the politicians throw in stones Singing ashes, ashes all fall down Ashes, ashes all fall down Back and forth Singing black or southern White couples Got a whole world For a petty woes Singing I got mine And you got yours While the grim fashion Sets the pace Loses death Fall out of grace And the radical The rise and rage Throwing stones so the kids they dance and shake their bones Cause it's all good clear we're on our own Singing ashes, ashes all fall down Ashes, ashes all fall down True white, blue ball just spinning, spinning free Dizzying possibilities Ashes, ashes all fall down 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 Won't fall down Won't fall down Sing ashes, ashes all fall down Won't fall down Won't fall down Sing ashes, ashes all fall down Ashes, ashes all fall down Ashes, ashes all fall down Ashes, ashes, all fall Every 
silver lining's got a touch of gray. I will get by. It's a lesson to me Angels and Vegas and the sea ABCs we all must face Try to keep a little grace
Fare you well, my honey. the birds that were singing are flown except you
Yeah, good night.